Hello, listeners. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the in the Pacific Northwest. Today is the 6th of August, 2020, and why don't we just go ahead and get right into this. What I'm going to do today is explain to you the process of aging from the point of view of genomic instability. So this is going to be a new topic. It's not going to be as uh, um, it's not going to be as easy for you to understand this as some of the earlier work may have been, because you're going to have to get a, a, a clearer understanding of DNA repair mechanisms. Now, normally when I do DNA repair, I do it on video because it's much easier to show with diagrams than it is to explain it. So I think what I'm going to do is try to stick with discussing more the pathology of genomic instability, do a little bit of a dive into the deep end of recombination mechanisms. That's one of the ways to repair DNA. And then pull out of that and get more into the clinical uh, and the manifestation of genomic instability as it relates to the aging of human uh, and then I will do a video lecture where I do a lot of uh, DNA repair mechanisms so that you see the detail of it. Anyway, again, Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry. Please do sign up, subscribe to this podcast, and please also consider contributing to either the podcast directly or to the Patreon page because we could really use it. All right, so let's get into this. Uh, remember, I'm doing all of these authentic biochemistry lectures because I have nothing better to do. Now, genomic instability has been implicated as, as a main causal factor in aging. Somatic cells, of course, are continually exposed to various sources of DNA damage, right? And so that's one of the key features of uh, heterotrophic multicellular animals in, in any kind of environment. You're going to get a lot of DNA damage. Um, primarily at the biochemical level, it's going to be caused, of course, by reactive oxygen, uh, but also by UV radiation. And then again, there are environmental mutagens. So they cope with the tens of thousands of chemical lesions that are int introduced into the genome of any typical cell within a 24-hour period, complex network of genomic maintenance systems acts to remove that damage and usually faithfully restore to the correct base pair sequence in the double-stranded DNA. Now, occasionally, repair itself causes mutations and, therefore, epi-mutations. And we can ask, are the frequency of these mutations sufficient to cause the phenotypic effects generally associated with aging, right? That's what we're trying to correlate here. The exception, of course, is cancer. Of course, an age-related disease clearly caused by the accumulation of mutations and epimutations. So that's why I keep on going back to discussing with you how cancer cells function and using that as a contrarian to how senescent cells get to where they are. But sometimes the mechanisms whereby we think aging is occurring, such as DNA damage, also is well represented in the literature as an understanding of how oncogenesis occurs. It just 
it's somewhere along in those two pathways, one leads to cell proliferation and the other leads to either program cell death, like we just talked about with apoptosis, or with this basically uh, inability to maintain homeostasis, slow dying of the cells, unable to replicate any longer because of telomere shortening, um, unable to synthesize enough ATP to maintain uh, just normal metabolism in the cell, and then those tissues senesce and then they die. So what I'm trying to say here is that the mechanisms whereby cells can become dysfunctional are natural. Even cancer is natural. It's a natural thing for cells to do, to proliferate. What is pathological or pathobiochemical in the process is when they replicate without any sound requirement for the system, right? And, and also when you're replicating cells that already carry paramutations, and because of that, everything you're replicating are cells which are not functional in that given tissue bed, right? And that's what cancer is all about. That, of course, spreading and then inducing these inflammatory responses and suppressing them elsewhere, causing the whole system to become uh, um, no longer homeostatic and eventually you get death. So genomic instability is by definition, the natural tendency of genomes to undergo alterations under normal physiological conditions. And there are three types of genomic alterations that can be um, induced because of the eruption of genomic instability. One of them is chemical damage to the DNA of the genome. That can be either the nuclear or the mitochondrial genome, or if it's plants, also the chloroplast genome. Mutations themselves, that is additions, deletions, substitutions of regions of the genetic code. And then epimutations, which are heritable changes in DNA or even protein modification that control gene expression, but don't affect the natural base pair sequence of the DNA. And we call that epigenetics. And we've talked a lot about it. Now, an epimutation is unique in that the alteration of the expression of genes, just say by introducing a methylation of a cytosine residue in a promoter region of a gene, or maybe a hundred methyl uh, groups into um, clusters or islands of cytosine residues in CPG islands, thus inhibiting or altering the expression of a gene. Um, that isn't necessarily a mutation because it's a plastic system so, and it's also elastic. So alterations in gene expression can happen very rapidly. When they're elastic, that is when it's necessary for gene expression to rapidly change, methylation of cytosines or acetylation, deacetylation of histones, microRNA mediated control of messenger RNA, messenger RNA stability, all of that can be uh, feeding into the genomic instability paradigm. And yet, those kind of epigenetic modifications don't lead to true mutation. Now, when I say an epigenetic mutation, I mean a plastic alteration. It's one that leaves its mark indelibly, or at least for multiple rounds of uh, cell cycle, and therefore cell division, um, and leading to 
an alteration in gene expression that causes detriment to the system. So those kind of mutations normally are called um, you know, negative mutations. They can get positive mutations like rapid growth, for example, or rapid repair, but those cannot be sustained because those also can lead to disease states. And I think we've talked enough about that, even these last 10 episodes, that you get the idea that homeostasis is a highly dynamic event ontology. This isn't, we're not talking about a static, mild change in the rhythm of bioenergetics or the uptake of glucose and the uh, utilization of amino acids after a limited proteolysis or organelle turnover slowly because the mitochondria lose their integrity or maybe the peroxisomes can no longer um, deal with the high levels of um, hydrogen peroxide or hydroxyl radicals, so they turn over. Um, what we're talking about here is a dynamic system that has to be able to change very rapidly, even in cells that are not associated with defense. So not even just the, not, not the immune cells at all, but epithelial cells and endothelial cells and organ type cells, hepatocytes and um, renal cells and cardiomyocytes and myocytes in the skeletal muscle and neurons and glia, all those cells themselves can um, trigger epigenetic phenomena. And if you get an epigenetic mutation in those, those can be maintained in a metastatic way. That is, they can be maintained as long as they're not causing an alteration of those cells to be able to maintain their homeostatic mechanisms and deal with whatever else is going to be happening coming down the pike. So again, think of it as a highly dynamic system. Always. Living systems are always dynamic and they're always very far. They're operating very far from chemical and biological equilibrium. That means that they're poised to react and then to suppress that reaction. And that's really how, and a good paradigm of that, of course, is the immune system. So let's talk a little bit about DNA damage repair and mutations in general. DNA damage is defined as a deviation from the normal chemical structure of DNA. So that's distinct from mutations, that is alterations in the information content. So when you talk about, you know, oh, there's a mutation that causes this disease, um, that's different than when we say, uh, that it's caused by DNA damage, right? Mutations don't necessarily um, arise from DNA damage. Often they can arise from the repair mechanism itself. <clears throat> so I want you to understand that. So spontaneous hydrolysis of DNA can cause depurination and depurinization that means you're losing a pyrimidine, you're losing a purine out of the nucleotide sequence. Oxidation leads to a myriad of different chemical lesions, however, and exogenous sources also for mutations and DNA damage, both can include radiation, such as thermal radiation, UV light, ionizing radiation, and then this whole host of environmental mutagens, which are gonna alter again the DNA structure not necessarily damage it, but alter it, or do both. If it's not quickly repaired, though, some DNA damage is not quickly repaired, DNA damage will result. So if the repair mechanism is functional and it's robust, you won't get DNA damage. 
Now, DNA repair systems are more generally referred to as systems for genome maintenance. And they really can serve systems, mechanisms that continuously monitor genomes for DNA damage and are responsible for a high level that we normally appreciate for genome integrity under normal physiological conditions. So there are diverse DNA repair systems. They augment DNA polymerase proofreading, and they mostly are characterized, unfortunately, in lower organisms, these repair systems. Although in the last 15, 20 years, all the classical DNA repair models were done in the late 60s and 70s using basically bacteria. Um, but since the late 90s, because of polymerase chain reaction type of methodology, and because of more sophisticated ability to grow cells in vitro, mammalian cells in vitro, a lot of work has been done on DNA repair mechanisms in, for example, mammalian cells. Um, and there is a lot of overlap between bacteria and animal cells, as you might guess, because DNA repair has to be something really ancient in terms of evolution. So there has been a lot that's been brought forward from the earlier work. General mechanisms that are shared in eukaryotes are direct repair, such as with pyrimidine dimers, base excision repair, nucleotide excision repair, mismatch excision repair, and then the double strand break repair and recombination. So those are actually five unique DNA repair systems. So let's talk real quickly about base excision repair. Again, I tell you it's better to do this with diagrams. I'm doing it because I've got so much to cover. I think I know you guys are intelligent and a lot of you have uh, advanced degrees. So this, isn't gonna, this should be a review for some of you. So you get a damaged base, let's say, somewhere in, a, in the chromatin. Basic excision repair pathways, or BER, start with a DNA glycosylase that recognizes the damaged base and it cleaves between the base and the deoxyribose in the backbone. Then you get an enzyme called the AP endonuclease. AP just stands for apurinic or apyrimidinic. That means without a purine or without a pyrimidine, right? Okay. So the AP endonuclease, it's working within, it's not working on the ends of the DNA, cleaves the phosphodiester backbone near that AP site, right, where you lost a purine or pyrimidine. DNA polymerase 1 then initiates repair synthesis from the free 3' hydroxy group at the NIC where that lesion has occurred, removing a portion of the damaged strand with its 5' prime to 3' prime exonuclease activity. That's all from DNA polymerase 1. And then it replaces it, because it's a polymerase, with undamaged DNA. Right? Then the NIC remaining after DNA polymerase 1 has dissociated, is, the one that was, that was there has dissociated, and it is sealed by the enzyme DNA ligase. Okay? So you have multiple enzymes here. You have a DNA glycosylase. You have an AP endonuclease. You have a DNA polymerase 1 or pole 1. And then you have, and the same pole one functions at the very end to, to work with DNA ligase to seal the wound. 
So the DNA glycosylase, as I said, initiates base pair, base excision repair. The examples of bases cleaved by DNA glycosylases are uracil, which is, results from the deamination of cytosine, eight-oxoguanosine, which is paired with cytosine. That's going to be simply an oxidation of the G, of guanine. Adenosine across from an eight-oxoguanine. That's going to be known as a misincorporation. Thymine across from a guanine. That's going to be a 5-methylcytosine deamination. And then you can also get an alkyl adenine, 3-methyladenine, 7-methylguanine hypoxanthine complex. So when these when DNA glycosylase works, it's functioning with bent DNA and the modified base that is accrued for any one of these alterations I just told you that the DNA glycosylase is going to cleave out, that modified base is flipped out of the duplex. And it's done so by modifying the DNA hyperstructure so that you no longer have Watson Crick structure, no longer the double stranded alpha helix. So, nucleotide excision repair is a third type. And if I want to go much more with this, I think I'm going to skip going through nucleotide excision, except to tell you this um, the, the signal for nucleotide excision repair starts with a structural distortion. Okay? So there's an enzyme called UVRA, and it recognizes bulky lesions. You also have a UVRB and a UVRC, and those make cuts where those distortions have been recognized. Now, there's a human E. coli exonuclease that does this activity, and there's also the E. coli. So they function very similarly. The two exonucleases or excision endonucleases bind DNA, see so the bacterial or the, or the human. They bind the DNA at the site of the bulky lesion. Then it cleaves the five prime side of that other nucleotide. And then, then another, another exonuclease molecule, another enzyme molecule, cleaves the three prime side of the lesion. So you have two exonucleases functioning simultaneously. The DNA fragment is then removed by an enzyme called helicase. And then the DNA polymerase fills in the gap and the DNA ligase seals the nick. So the key feature here is you have two exonucleases, two ex excision endonucleases working bicamerally to remove that bulky lesion. Okay, so that's called nucleotide excision repair. Now, there's a lot more detail to it, obviously. Um, and I'm just not going to, I'm not going to get into it right now. I want to later on talk about recombination repair because that's, that's a very important feature for long-term DNA mutations when that doesn't work correctly. And I want to be able to do that again with uh, diagrams, okay? So... Just to summarize DNA damage and repair, there are common types of DNA damage. The defects in the repair itself can cause a disease, and there's DNA repair pathways. There's a direct enzymatic repair. There's a base excision only. 
There's nucleotide excision, mismatch repair, double-stranded break repair, which we haven't talked about yet. And then following subsequent to that, non-homologous end joining and indeed even homologous recombination. So again, I'm going to talk about that, that whole recombination repair system. And I'm going to use diagrams. And of course, that'll be a video. So these DNA repair systems, just to summarize so far what we are, it's clear because we see them in bacteria, right? And so if we see them in bacteria, we see that the reactions are similar. It seems that DNA repair systems arose early in the history of life. And, and with the emergence of longer DNA fragments, such as with um, you know, more complex organisms, right? Leaving the, the bacteria and moving up the ladder of evolution. Um, you replace the original genome of protocells with more uh, complicated processes. And sometimes these DNA repair mechanisms start utilizing messenger RNA, actually. So the longer molecules that you find in higher organisms like humans are possible because DNA is more stable than RNA. So the reason we don't have RNA genomes in higher organisms, you know, in multicellular heterotrophic organisms like a human is because with the longer, D, longer DNA, it's a more stable structure than longer versions of RNA. So RNA genomes common in viruses, for example, you don't find RNA genomes in most living systems because the longer RNA is in terms of how many nucleotides it is, the more prone it is to damage DNA because it normally forms duplex structures where RNA very seldom does in nature because it's used more as an intermediate from nucleotide to protein, right? Like in the messenger RNA, ribosomal RNA and transfer RNA in eukaryotes, right? Uh, that kind of RNA is stable also with a little bit of uh, doubling up phenomena like in the transfer RNA molecules and even in the ribosomal RNA. Primarily, those are single-stranded RNAs, like messenger RNA, microRNA. So the DNA is much more stable. It forms these huge complexes and also stores a tremendous amount of genetic information, right? So I want you to get the idea that this whole concept of DNA repair has to start after any RNA genomic systems, right? Because the RNA genomic system, they have a repair system too. Um, and normally they go by making a um, homologous DNA and pair with it, and then they repair the RNA genome. And we could talk about that sometime, but because we're talking about aging in humans, it's really not relevant uh, to talk about it in these lectures. Sometime I could go ahead and talk about RNA repair. And, you know, we could do that even in the context of disease. So not leaving it out of the uh, realm of possibility, uh, but not for the aging lecture. So we're going to leave that alone. So longer molecules are possible because DNA is more stable than RNA. It also allows the repair of uracil. That's a product of spontaneous deamination of cytosine. Whereas DNA is thiamine, remember, uracil, of course, is the natural nucleotide in RNA and therefore can't be repaired in RNA because there's because RNA is more of the information carrier, right? The information hypothesis of messenger RNA. So the first repair system could have been a mutual reactivation 
of lethally damaged protocells by a recombination mechanism. It's the simplest way to do it, which simultaneously would introduce a mechanism of DNA exchange repair, or then ultimately, how about this, sexual reproduction, right, where sexual reproduction allows gametes then, which are subducted genomes, right, from in, in humans, for example, it's 2x to 1x, uh, or one, uh, 1n, 2n to 1n. And because of that, you have now an ability to do a recombination of the gametes and to form uh, the, the ultimate um, embryo. And when that occurs, right, when you get two strands of DNA coming together and you form now a diploid organism, right, which is going to be the somatic carrying through until the nest reproductive phase, the DNA repair systems there also are kind of like put on hiatus, but you still have to be concerned about genome integrity, right? So there's a lot of work on gametic DNA repair mechanisms because of that. And it's very important in human biology, human reproductive biology in particular. So very quickly um, after DNA uh, formed and was the uh, basically the nucleotide that was being used for the hereditary material in living systems, the DNA repair systems evolved and they worked up very rapidly to be able to do the process. That's what's considered probably very significant, at least for the state of this lecture. So DNA repair systems provide living organisms with the mean to stabilize the genome. Remember, this is supposed to be a, a, a lecture about genome instability. And I told you before, that instability itself, okay, is not something you should think is pathological, right? It's not pathobiochemical. DNA instability actually allows for DNA to be unraveled and transcribed or replicated or repaired. So instability simply means it's not bound up into chromatin. However, when you have chronic DNA instability, as induced by mutations or epigenetic uh, modifications, if you have chronic instability, this is what's believed to be one of the, if not causal factors in aging in animal systems like humans, certainly highly correlated to it. Because you can get the idea, if you have a lot of DNA instability, you have multiple requirements to repair that DNA because it needs to be put back, packaged back into what can then perform as, a, as normal chromatin, right? And if it needs to be packaged back, it needs to be repaired. The more instability, the more fires you have to put out, you can understand that after there's some um, lethal ratio is met by Rec and recognized by the process in the cell that surveils such alterations, then those, that, those cells are either going to be killed outright, maybe by immune cells, or they're going to kill themselves like by, by apoptosis, or they're going to go through senescence. The aging process will take over and those cells will not only not survive, but they won't replicate and then carry on another generation. See how that functions then? As, as a teleology of cell maturation and multicellular organisms. So that's, that's, the, that's the idea we're trying to get at here with aging. Aging is something that requires genome instability in order for it to 
end up being senescence. But genomic instability is by no means something that occurs only when the organism is older. In fact, cells, some cells reproduce very rapidly in the body, and some reproduce only very slowly, only after damage. And during those processes of repair, the instability is going to be, frankly, held in situ during the repair process. With those same mechanisms I was just telling you about, and the one big one, the replication, recombination repair mechanism, even more so. So I'm going to leave you with that right now. I'm just kind of a basic introduction of DNA instability. We're going to do the next lecture, rapid fire. We're going to get into a lot of detail about DNA instability. And ultimately, as I said, we're going to get into the, the physiology, the pathophysiology of it, and some clinical discussions. So for right now, this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios on the 6th of August, 2020, saying bye for now. <laughs>